0: pray. Father, as we look into this portion of your word, we pray that you might help us understand the wonders and the privileges of what it is to be able to speak with you and to pray to you and to know that we've been heard by you. We pray that you might help us, Father, not to just have a one week of emphasis on prayer, but we pray that we might become known as a people who are a praying people, who are enjoying the privilege of prayer before you. We pray these things now as we read your word through Christ our Lord. Amen. What is it about diamonds that makes them so desirable? I won't do a survey here, but I would imagine a majority of us have either purchased a diamond sometime in our life, or we... Uh, perhaps own a diamond or two and we wear them, uh, what is it about them that makes them so valuable? I mean, if you boil it all down, a diamond actually on a molecular level is nothing more than just carbon atoms that have been crystallized into some form of a very highly structured cubic form. Now, that's not a very good explanation. Sorry, Mr. Camelloni, but uh, <laughs> that's the way I understand it. But obviously, we know that one reason diamonds are so valued is because they're so durable. It is one of the hardest rocks all on earth. But do you know how they got that way? Diamonds underwent a period of intense pressure combined with heat in the right proportion and the right amount of time. And those external stresses served a good purpose actually they produce gemstones which can then now be cut by other diamonds and polished into objects of lasting value and beauty i want us to think this morning a little bit about not just diamonds but people like you and me how does god create in his people Enduring qualities that exhibit His glory, His beauty put on display. God has at His disposal all sorts of ways in which He can shape and remake His people. And one of those tools that He has at His uh, um, disposal is to use the application of pressure and heat in our lives. I'm convinced that God does not waste any affliction. He does not waste any hardship in our lives. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the text of Scripture in Romans 8 that assures us that God can and God does work all things, even suffering, even trials, to work together for good for those who Love God to those who are called according to God's purpose, and God's purpose is to make His people into the image of Christ. Now, this verse of Scripture does not affirm that all things are in and of themselves good. The text of Scripture is merely saying and assuring us that God causes them to work together for good according to God's plans and purposes. Now we have just concluded a week in which we've tried to encourage all of us to make prayer much more of an emphasis in our day-to-day experience. And as members of a church, I want us to encourage us to to not stop doing this. The purpose of my sermon this morning is to encourage us to, to keep seeking and keep persisting in our seeking of God in prayer. And I want us to think about this theme of prayer and and God's plans, God's strategies, and see how it all comes together in this text. We find several outlines of this strategy of God to make us more like Christ through the intersection of three elements pressure, prayer, and the polishing effect of the Word of God. So follow along now as we think about these three things. First of all, in this text of Scripture, in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 81 it's very obvious that there's pressure and there's heat. Pressure and heat. The psalmist alludes to a number of difficulties that he faced. He referred to the fact of verses 84 and verse 89, that his life is in danger. There were several people who were also harassing him. They were hunting him down, as it were. Uh, His reputation was under attack. As a matter of fact, He alludes to there in verse 86 that there were some rumors, uh, there were false accusations that like wind-blown sparks from a massive forest fire. Have you ever seen how many of those sparks get uh, thrown up into the air and then the wind just blows them far into the distance? That's like these rumors, they're spreading far and wide through gossip. There are multiple traps that were set for him. I think he's alluding to probably uh, metaphorical traps. People are trying to make life difficult for him, but perhaps some of them were literal. I don't know. It's unclear. But he faced all different kinds of forms of persecution, verse 84. And from that, I just, again, observe something that you and I both probably should admit to or at least acknowledge, and I think we know, and that is that Christians and non-Christians Alike, suffer. It could be physical pain. It could be relational pain when you've been treated unjustly by another person. It could be oppressive pain, I'll call it, where a whole society or whole culture is treating you unjustly through various forms of discrimination, perhaps. But Jesus' disciples are not immune. From encountering all sorts of trials, right? That's what James 1 says. The Bible does not gloss over the reality that life in this world is filled with headaches and heartaches. And some forms of suffering, we must admit, are the consequences of our own foolish choices. We all know that. But there are other consequences, there are other times in life where the The sufferings of this world are the result of the choices of other sinful people. And we also know that sometimes suffering comes from just the mere fact that we live in a fallen world where there's sickness, there's disease. Things are just not right. And all this pressure and all this heat that can come in different times of life, it's not pleasant. But what I want us to remind ourselves of this morning is that none of these things are ever outside the sovereign hand of God. God is able to use pressure. He's able to use heat and different forms of suffering to accomplish our good and His glory. We need to be careful here and not be self-deceived. It's not God's will to spare us all forms of suffering, all forms of hardship, all forms of trial. You say, how do you know that? Well, 1 Peter 4, I would remind you, verse 19 or chapter 3, verse 17, remind us that at times, at certain times, it's God's will for His people to suffer. So contrary to the health and wealth gospel, right? That so oftentimes is being promulgated there on various ways in the media, assuring us that God really wants you to be wealthy, God wants you to be healthy all the time. No, that's not the case. Praying and seeking God Meditating the Word of God does not provide us immunity from trials and hardships. These trials and hardships impress upon us the need we have for a Savior. The more we suffer, the more we realize we need help, we need a rescuer, we need somebody to make things the way they ought to be. And the more we suffer, the more we are thankful to realize that Jesus Christ identified with our afflictions. He was called a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like to live in a world that's fallen, a world in which people treated him terribly and unjustly. He knows what it is. In coming here and suffering all those things, he did it for the purpose of breaking the curse of sin. It is Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, is the one that we know is the only one who can reverse the brokenness in this fallen world. So if you look at verse 81, the psalmist starts this section by saying, I languish for your salvation. It's almost like he's so weary and he's almost ready to wear out, but he's still looking for that salvation indeed, the more pressure, the more heat of circumstances in our lives, I would hope that God would use it to create within us a longing for Christ's return. That we do look for a new world. We do look for a new heavens and a new earth. This is not all there is in this world. Thank God. We look for Christ to someday complete that work of redemption. And I believe that the psalmist here is acknowledging, yes, I'm looking for you to do that, Lord. May that be what God does in us to seek Him all the more. But I want us to think secondly in this text, not only about the the pressure and the the heat, but there's also a personal impact that's so obvious in the life of this individual who wrote this. Things went from bad for this guy to worse. This affliction that was uh, facing his life It was something that went on and on for a period of time, and it took a toll on him. Look at verse 81. He had waited for a time for God to intervene, and his soul, after waiting and waiting and waiting, had become weary. He's looking and asking God to intervene in a situation, and over a period of time, nothing happens. He's still waiting. Do you know what it's like when you face a situation like that? You've waited, you've prayed, you've waited, you've prayed. You're still waiting, you're still praying. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your job situation. Maybe it's in your physical well-being and some illness that you're facing. All this external pressure that persists, it definitely can impact our emotions, it impacts our sense of, what's happening around us. And after a while, you feel so weary, you, you almost feel like giving up. It not only affects that part of us, it can also affect our health. And that's what I think the psalmist alludes to. Look at verse 83. What an interesting way of describing himself. Verse 83, Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. I think what he's saying here is that his physical strength has declined. They have these storage containers. They didn't have Tupperware. They don't have glass jars or bottles like we have. In the time in which this was written, they would store some of their wine in wineskins. And these leather skins would oftentimes be hung from the rafters near the roof. And if they do all their cooking over an open fire, then the heat from that over a period of time would dry out these wineskins, exposure to this dry heat. And the psalmist, I think, is comparing his body to a dried out wineskin. I think the afflictions that have taken a toll on him in terms of his spirit have also taken a toll on him physically. And the stress over a long period of time can indeed affect us physically, can it? Of course it can. One of the effects of stress, is, as we all know, is you, a period of time in which you lose sleep, which leads us to what? Physical exhaustion, which leads to oftentimes lowering our immunity, which means we oftentimes become sick, and one thing leads to another. But What I want to think about in, in the midst of this fellow who's having so many internal concerns and weakness physically weak also notice throughout the psalm what is the psalmist doing he's not just being clever trying to find different ways to talk about the word of God he is praying did you notice that as we read through that text throughout Psalm 119 he is acknowledging his joys he's also acknowledging his concerns he is not shutting himself off from God He mentions his heartaches. He mentions his headaches to God. And I find it interesting that in a similar way, Jesus did the same thing in his ministry. Jesus would, throughout his ministry, had communion with his Father, talking to him in the early morning hours. And throughout the days, he he ministered his busy life. But as things got worse toward the end of his public ministry, as he began to see the plotting, the people who were, who are abandoning him, the people who turned against him, the people who who began to insist that he be treated in an unjust way and who allowed that to go forward. Isn't it interesting that Jesus throughout that time, when he's described in these ways as being very distressed, very troubled as he moved toward those days, he's like in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, my soul is deeply grieved. He acknowledges in Luke 22 that he's in agony. And what does he do during that time? Throughout the period of time of those hours in which leading to his trial and his time of suffering on the cross and the moments right before that, Jesus is lifting up his heart to his Father in prayer. Even on the cross, even in his agony, even when his flesh is crying out in extreme pain, People are still mocking him. Jesus is praying to the Father. I find it amazing that if we're in a place in which we don't know how to pray and we're having a hard time praying, pull out the Psalms. Pull out your Psalms. Read them. Make them your prayers. In the Psalms, we find exclamations of praise. We find desperate pleas for mercy. We find the the psalmist offering mournful confessions of sin to God, crying out to Him for cleansing. We find offerings of thanksgiving and gratitude, cries for help. It's all there. And so in this psalm, the psalmist continues his connections and vital communion with the Father. Sometimes when our stamina dec- decreases, our communion of God will suffer also. We find ourselves Pulling away from God. I know I've used this illustration before, but I go back to it again and again, thinking about what it was like years ago, about seven or eight years ago in Chile. There were 33 miners working 2,000 feet below the surface. And in this mine, which was not very well designed and wasn't following all the good safety concerns that they should be following, there was a massive shifting in the rocks in that area and this uh, collapse of the ceiling of this mine took place. They said it was about the size of the Empire State Building. That kind of massive amount of rock just moved and shifted down. And so they're trapped in there. 33 miners in this underground cavity. No way in, no way out. And for some very long days, they had a bit of like two days supply for about 25 people. They began to ration out that food and they're doing what they can to survive. And during that time, they hear a drilling that's going on. And they bore this hole down through those 2,000 feet into this area where they think that they were going to find them. And the hole that they drilled was only four and a half inches in diameter. And when they finally saw this boring hole come through the ceiling you talk about excited they were banging on that drill bit as hard as they could to communicate we are down here and we're alive and as a result of breaking through with that four and a half inch drill they then began to descend in that tiny little hole drinking water food and guess what else a telephone line to communicate with those on the top there at the surface And so it was through that phone line they began to communicate what their needs were, how to handle physical problems and crises, what they needed to do, what what the plan was. They kept giving them words of assurance and hope that they are going to bore a huge hole, big enough to bring each body out of there, which eventually they did. But it was that lifeline of communication that helped them have hope to realize they were not alone or forgotten or left to fend for themselves. And the same is true for you and me. When we go through times of trials and heartaches and the pressure and the heat gets built up, let's not forget that God is one that we can turn to, as the psalmist did. We can turn to Him and talk to Him about anything and everything we face. He indeed is available to us because of Jesus Christ. Well, what keeps us... Praying, What keeps us motivated during that time? That brings me to our third point. We find in this text that there are powerful tools for cutting and polishing. Yes, the psalmist faced discouragement and difficulties, but I find it fascinating that in the midst of those things, he not only continued to pray, asking God for help, he continued to read the Word. He continued to read the Scriptures throughout this text, that's what we find in Psalm 119, is allusions to God's law, his testimonies, his, his, uh, his word. He kept at it, even when I'm sure he didn't feel like it. Verse 87, he did not forsake the precepts of God. Let me just encourage us at this regard if we have a habit of reading the Word, even when we don't feel like it, it's a great discipline to have. The Word of God is powerful; it's alive. It is able to penetrate deep within us, into our thinking processes, into our motivations. Hebrews four says, and "The Scriptures will clarify God's ways; it will remind us of what God, how God is dealing with us, and that." It's not unique, whatever situation we find ourselves. It's common to man, we learn in scriptures. And rather than being disinterested and distracted, God actually is abundantly available to help in time of need, we learn in the Word of God. It's in the scriptures that we learn that God's ways are not our ways. And God's agenda is not our agenda, our agenda is to be happy have no problems, to live a carefree life. God's agenda is to make us holy. Uses all sorts of afflictions to refine our faith. That's what concerns me about what is being um, propagated here, being celebrated, being, um, uh, I guess you'd say, dramatized. Here in our uh, theaters is a movie recently has now been released called The Shack, based on a novel written by a missionary kid, uh, Paul Young, who I must say, my heart goes out to him. Uh, He acknowledges that uh, during the years in which he grew up on the mission field that he was sexually abused, not by a member of this family. So we never want to minimize the kind of pain and suffering this man has endured. But, in the midst of his wrestling and trying to come to make sense of what has happened to him, his own struggle with his trauma and his personal pain, he wrote a book, a novel in which he entitled It the Shack, in which he talks about the story of a, a father who at one moment is seeking to rescue his son who's drowning. At the same moment, unbeknownst to the father, his daughter has been kidnapped and time goes on. They can't find the daughter. Eventually, the police find evidence that his daughter's been murdered in this shack out in the woods. And so the father struggles with this horrible news. He says he, he, he carries around with him this great sadness. We certainly can understand that, can't we? And this great sadness just continues to draw the life out of him. And so in his struggle, God reaches out to him and gets a letter from God, according to this novel called The Shack. And God communicates with him and says, I want you to come to The Shack, and I want to meet you there. And this guy is thinking, that's the last place I want to go. That reminds me of this horrible thing that's happened. But nonetheless, he does finally go there. And when he goes there, he then meets God personally. And the way they depict the Trinity, which I won't go into details here, is really quite bizarre. And there's much that's been written about that. It really is quite strange, depicting each member of the Godhead as a different person and whatever. Um, And through all this engagement and interaction, Young is trying to process, how do we make sense of all this? And he eventually comes down to the thought that, you know, God's hands were tied. People make their choices and people choose evil. And there's only so much God can do. He struggles with the problem of pain and he struggles to try to bring some sort of answer to what seems like it can't be answered. And the answers are left us leave us hanging, I would have to say to you. And the reason I say that is because why does he write a novel when the God, when the word of God gives us the story of a man who went through all kinds of suffering and went through all kinds of loss in real life And God encountered him after almost 30 chapters of his friends, three quote-unquote friends who give him all sorts of reasons why this suffering he deserved because of retribution from God, because of all the things he did wrong. And Job keeps saying, no, 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 that cannot be right. And what is the end of the book of Job? It is God confronting him with numerous unanswerable questions. Where were you, Job, when I did this and I did this and I did this and I created that and I fashioned this? Where are you? And the answer is God doesn't give him clear answers. But he does live him with a very unusual and powerful statement in Job 42, verse 11. Maybe you want to turn there. Job forty-two eleven. The writer of Job says, Then all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before came to Job and ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him in all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. That's a profound statement. And in the mystery of all that happens in Job, we don't understand all the whys and wherefores. We don't understand all of the explanations of how those things can take place when there is a holy And righteous and good God and why there is so much evil in the world but we do see them converge in the cross of Christ and understand that God does accomplish his grace overcomes all these things and through the gospel we understand that indeed his purposes are mysterious yes but they're wiser than we can fathom and that the pain in his good providence and plan Will never fully answer all of our questions, but it does give us a place to look and see what happened to his own son on that cross in order to rescue a fallen world. He himself underwent horrible evil that he might redeem us. And here's the problem, here's what I want to draw this to. If we go through trials, the pressure and the heat gets turned on our life, and we don't stay in the Word, then after a while we try to make sense of all of that. And people around us try to make sense of all that. And if you want to hear God speak, you don't need to go to the shack to have all the explanations. You need to go to the Word of God. It's the Word of God is God speaking to you. You say, well, I want to hear God speak to me. Then read the Word of God aloud. And you're hearing God speak to you. I'm not exaggerating. See, the psalmist persisted in reading his Bible. And what happened? His faith was strengthened. He doesn't understand everything, no. But we do have the Word of God and we do have the Holy Spirit who illumines and helps us to apply to us so that we might know God in the midst of a fallen world. And you'll notice in the end of this particular section of Psalm 119, would you notice verse 88 with me? Because he remained in the Word, because the Word of God continued to help guide him and direct his heart. He was focused so long on his troubles, all of his hardships around him, on the outside, surrounding him. But notice by reading and contemplating the Word, his perspective was broadened. His perspective was deepened to see that the need, what he really needs to pray for is verse uh, verse, uh, verse 88 there. He realizes that God has not abandoned him. God is at work in his heart. He's using every pressure, every heat-producing situation. Look at verse 71 earlier in the text. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. That's a perspective that doesn't come naturally. It comes after we read the Word and understand how God has revealed to us His purposes and plans. And finally, he reaches the point where he wants God to work mightily to change his own heart. He prays that God would not revive him because he deserves it. But notice what he says. Revive me according to your loving kindness. That word loving kindness is so rich. I can't fully translate it for you. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which you got to watch out when you say that because people around you might get a little wet. But it word basically means undeserved, loyal, unfailing love. In English, we have a hard time knowing how to put all that together in one word. Loving kindness is often how it's translated. He's saying, because of your mercy, because of your undying love for me, you see me in all of my bad choices, bad reactions. You nonetheless love me. I want to ask you, based on that love, would you revive my heart? See, God can use times of affliction to teach us to admit that we have a need to know God's grace know his mercy, know his love, know his strength, know his hope, know his truth. And God's goal, my friend, is for his people to have enduring beauty, the beauty of Christ's likeness, to reflect that in the midst of the trials we go through that people would see the patience of Christ, the joy of Christ, the peace of Christ. Outward pressures and the heat that God brings into our lives are His tools to shape our hearts. And the gemstone of inner Christ-likeness will never be formed in us apart from the Spirit of God who applies the truth of God to our hearts. And so I say, are we going to keep suffering and have problems and pressure and heat? Yes, you're going to find those in this life. But keep praying and keep reading studying, meditating on the Word of God, that He might work on us. Let's pray. I don't know where you are. I don't know what God is doing in your life, what kind of difficulties you face. But I just want to assure you that God knows exactly what He's doing that He's sovereign and in control, and that for you and me, there's nothing wrong with asking for a relinquishing or a letting up of the pressure and the the heat, but there comes a time when we finally need to surrender and say, Lord, will you revive my heart in the midst of whatever pressure and heat I'm in? So before I pray for all of us, Would you just offer your prayer to the Lord? You would ask Him to revive your heart according to His loving kindness that you might continue to walk before Him and know Him and become more like Him. Now I'd I'd like to ask all of us to stand as we now have our final prayer. Please stand. Lord, I pray for all of us today, I ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will, that we would understand your will, and that we may walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, that we might please you, Lord, in every way, that we might bear fruit in every good work, and that whatever happens, we would increase in our knowledge of you, that we might know you more and more. And Lord, I pray that you would empower us, that we might become a people who are filled with perseverance and patience and endurance, and that we might joyously give thanks to you, because you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of all the saints in light. Work this in us, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.